0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And so we come to chapter 41 and it all starts to come together. And of course we know that Pharaoh has a dream And uh, the dream involves cows and grains of wheat and fat and skinny and full and famine and famished. And, and, uh, of course, the skinny cows come and eat the fat cows and the withered stalks of grain come and eat the whole stalks of grain. And it troubles Pharaoh. So Pharaoh wakes up and he's disturbed and he knows that these dreams are an omen from God. And he he wants to know what they mean. And so he calls all his best advisors. And Egypt was actually quite known. In fact, there are still a lot of uh, manuscripts left from this time and earlier, some very, very ancient, ancient manuscripts, teaching people the art of interpreting dreams. And for the Egyptians, they put great weight in dreams, and especially dreams like this, that they were a message from the gods. And they had experts who were well-versed and skilled who would... You know, you, you could get your PhD in dreamology, and uh, they did. And he had Pharaoh. Of course had the best, and they had all kinds of books and volumes. And you can actually look these up if you're into this and you want to try to interpret your dreams. You can look up, and the Egyptians will tell you. You know, if you dream of a cat, it means this. If you dream something about a dog, it means that. Um, interestingly, according to the Egyptians, if you dream about death, it means that you're going to have a long life. Who knew? I did. It doesn't I don't get that, but that's what they thought, right? So he calls in his experts, these guys who know all this stuff. Well, you know, here's the problem with Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh's dream is quite conflicted. Okay, what do you do with a dream that has both fat and skinny cows? Right? That has both fat you know, and plump grain and, and famished grain. You know, kind of, The symbols were too contradictory. And so they didn't know what to do with that. Chances are they all gave great explanations, but none satisfied Pharaoh. And he's he's seeing now this uh, this is not it you guys are missing the boat right well uh, at this point in the story the cupbearer remembers what he had forgotten two years ago and it dawns on him oh my goodness when I was in prison I went there because I did I offended Pharaoh I sinned and Pharaoh sent me there and the cupbearer and we met this guy there and notice how it describes Joseph it says. Um, Some years ago, you were angry with the baker and me. You imprisoned us. Uh, One night, the chief baker and I each had a dream. Each had its own meaning. There was a young Hebrew man with us in prison who was the slave of a captain guard. Okay, several descriptors there. He was young. Okay, he was a Hebrew. He was a slave. Okay, now, in Egypt, if you wanted to make a, a resume that would impress somebody, like Pharaoh... Don't put any of those three things on there, okay? Young Hebrew slave it's like, huh? Right? But he goes on and he says, but he told us our dreams and it, it happened exactly as he predicted. Well, Pharaoh is very troubled about his dreams. And so he wants answers and he doesn't really care who it comes from. It is inconsequential to him that this is a young Hebrew slave. He says, if this guy can do this, I want to know what he has to say. So Joseph is rushed out of the dungeon. They tear off his old, dirty, filthy prison clothes, uh, his outer garment, actually. Doesn't have time to take a shower, doesn't take a bath. They just slap on a clean robe, shave his beard and his hair, and rush him before the presence of Pharaoh. Now get this imagine you're Joseph. You know, you got up in the morning. You went through your normal prayer time with God, looking forward to another day, you know, cleaning uh, human waste out of the corners of the cells. Uh, another day looking forward to the dunge and, and dank dampness of an underground pit, probably with no windows, likely with nothing but an opening in the, in the top where they would lower food down. Um, your life has been this way for years, right? All of a sudden, you find yourself standing before the most powerful man in the world, right? Uh, with little warning, right? Hey, what would that do to you? Me, personally, that would unravel me, okay? That would be would I mean, be kind of cool, but, um, and the most powerful man in the world wants your opinion, right? Well... Uh, he comes before Pharaoh, and, and let me start reading here. Uh, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought, shaved, changed his clothes, went and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means. But I have heard that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph replied, no, I cannot. But God will tell you what it means and will give you an answer that will set you at ease. So Pharaoh told Joseph his dream. He said, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the river and I saw the fat, healthy cows come up out of the river, uh, grazing in the grass. But then I saw seven sick-looking cows, scrawny and thin, come up. I have never seen such sorry-looking animals in all the land of Egypt. These thin, scrawny cows ate the seven fat cows. But afterward, you wouldn't have known it, for they were still as thin and as scrawny as ever before. Then I woke up. I fell asleep again and had another dream. This time I saw seven heads of grain, full and beautiful, growing on a single stalk. But then seven more heads of grain appeared, but these were blighted, shriveled, and withered by the east wind. And the shriveled heads swallowed the seven healthy heads. I've told these dreams to the magicians, but no one can tell me what they mean. So Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God, now get this, he says, God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin, uh, scrawny cows that came up and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent severe famine. This will happen just as I have described it. For God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. Um, a couple things to note here. First off, uh, I love uh, I love Joseph's first response. Okay, now Joseph, I think Joseph has been looking for this moment. If you remember back at the end of chapter forty, he asked the the Uh, the baker and the cupbearer to remember him, right? He's looking for this kind of opening. And now his time has come, and he stands before Pharaoh, and he has the opportunity to be released. He has the opportunity for freedom, right? And the first thing out of his mouth is, I can't do it. Okay, I can't do it. And it's interesting, the the phrase in the language here, in in Hebrew it's actually one word. And it's, it's a very strong word, And the the grammatical structure is kind of an in-your-face word. In other words, he doesn't say, "Mm, you know, I'm not sure I could do that. He says, No. Very in-your-face. No, I can't do that. Right? Uh, Not the most politically correct thing to say to Pharaoh, right? He says, Don't, don't, don't misunderstand what this is about. He says, I can't do this. All right. He's very confident about this. He's actually very confident about two things. He's very confident, first of all, that he does not have the capacity or ability to do this. But notice what he says. He says, but God will give you an answer. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says he will give you an answer of shalom. Okay, God will do this. Okay? Now, I love this. Um, and you could say that, that Joseph was smart enough to not, not overcommit himself, right? Like, Like, what if it doesn't actually work out? What if he, you know says this, but Pharaoh doesn't buy it. You know, he's trying to, to kind of hedge his bets here a little bit. He's trying to not put himself out too much. That's not what it's about because he doesn't say, well, I can't do this and, you know, God might help you out. We'll see. No. He's very confident. He says, I cannot do this. God will. God will give you an answer of peace. God will give you an answer that will satisfy your question. All right. So he has no confidence in himself, but it's incredible his, his confidence in what God will do. I'll tell you what, if, if you don't get anything from this message and you go away with this phrase, this would serve us well all week long. Anytime somebody asks something of you, you just say, no, I can't do it, but God will. Right? That, that would go right there. We could just quit there. Maybe there's a lot of verses left. Maybe you're thinking, that would be good. Let's end there. Uh, no, I can't do it. God will. No I can't preach this morning. No I can't tell you anything from God's word this morning. No I can't minister to you. But God will. God will speak to you today, okay? No I can't do the ministry God's called me to. But God will minister through me to to touch the lives of people around you, right? Great phrase. And that's that's gives you something of the character and something that's been shaping and forming in Joseph's life while he's been in prison, while he's been a slave. He's come to know confidently the power of God in his life, right? That it's not Joseph who can do anything, but God can do great things, and he will do great things, right? Um, and then he goes on and he says, he says look, Pharaoh... Here's the deal. God has, after he sure the dream, uh, and and Joseph's instantly all over it. I mean, Joseph's like, well, this is plain and obvious as day, right? And he doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to say, let me go pray about it. He knows the answer because God's given it to him. And he is very clear and direct. He says, look, God is showing Pharaoh. God is revealing to you, Pharaoh, what what God is going to do. This is uh, not... a It's a minor point in the story, but it's not a minor point in Scripture, and it's something we need to look at seriously. Uh, Notice what Joseph does not say. Joseph is not saying, uh, Pharaoh, God can see into the future, and he's about to tell you the things that are going to happen over which God has no control. That's not what he says, is it? He says, God's telling you the things he is going to do. Okay, there's going to be a famine. There's going to be seven years of prosperity. There's going to be seven years of famine. And God knows what's going to happen because God's doing it. Right? So the very first thing off, Joseph makes a confident assertion of what God is going to do for Pharaoh. And then he backs it up with this statement that you know, God is sovereign. God is almighty and all-powerful. And what he's predicting, he's not predicting because God's some kind of fortune teller. Who's got his magic ball and God's up in the heavens and he's got his magic ball, his crystal ball, and he's looking and he has foreseen, you know, the future. Right? No, he's the describing and declaring kind a of God who controls the future, who has absolute power over the future, who is sovereign. Uh, he is a God who knows the future because He controls it. Right? There's going to be a famine because God's sending a famine. Now, why is this important? Well, this is especially important in our day and age, uh, probably more so than in Pharaoh's day. In Pharaoh's day, Pharaoh would not have disputed. Pharaoh would not have said, what do you mean telling me that you, you believe in a sovereign God? You know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't debate with Joseph and say, what, well, you, mean, you mean you know this God who controls the universe, who controls the weather? Well, that's absurd. Well, of course not, because in Pharaoh's day, it was, it was a given. Okay? You weren't God if you weren't powerful. If you didn't control the clouds and the weather and the seasons, well, you weren't God, right? But in our day, that's very much not the the truth. And the reality is that a lot of people, sadly, many Christians included, uh, don't really believe God is sovereign, right? And we have, and in fact, it's incredible some of the teaching that's out right now that waters down and dilutes the sovereignty of God. Um, well, why is that? Why, why, why don't we want God to be sovereign? Well, it comes down to this issue for us in our time and our day and our age, is that um, if God is sovereign and He's in control of everything, therefore God could prevent disasters, right? Which obviously anything in our life that's a disaster, any catastrophe, any famine... Uh, is obviously evil. And if God can't stop evil in the world, then therefore God's evil. God's the author of bad things, right? Um, and, if, in, in, if, you know, the world all around us, in fact, I just saw, you know, Steve Jobs died, and now all the stuff's coming out about him, his biography or whatever, and uh, it comes out that as a young boy, he turned away from and rejected God. You know Why? because he was troubled by all the starving, dying children in the world. Right? So in other words, he said, if, if God can't fix this, if, if God's out there and he's the sovereign, almighty creator God who can't intervene on the behalf of starving children, I don't want a God like that. Right? Well, that's the accusation and, and the charge of the world at large. And if you talk to people, you share Christ with people anywhere. It's one of the first questions that comes up. You know, if, God, if your God is so good, then why does he let so much evil happen in the world? Evil being defined as, why does God allow so many things that cause me great comfort? Right? You know, I could break my nails. And that's evil! Right? Well, God would let me break my nails. Right? And that's how we define, this kind of the modern definition of evil. Evil is no longer, interestingly, evil is no longer about moral choices of right and wrong. Evil's now been, because we don't believe in, you know, the, the modern world has rejected notions of right and wrong, and we've substituted right and wrong with what's convenient and comfortable. Evil's now defined in, you know, what, what keeps me comfortable and keeps my luxurious life maintained. Anything that messes with my comfortable, luxurious life is, must be evil, right? And if God's the one wrecking my life with discomfort, God himself must be evil. Right? Well, the church has wrestled with this, and the church has been asked this question, and Christians have been asked this question, so how do Christians answer it? Well, sadly, the answer of a lot of Christians now, and a lot of people, is that, well, God's not actually sovereign. The reality is God's quite impotent and weak, and when God says he knows the future, it just means he, he's got this great crystal ball, and he can look into the future, and he can see when bad things are going to come, But he can't actually do anything about it. He is impotent. He is powerless because God does not control the future. Uh, You know, you you may think uh, that can't really be true. Do Christians really believe that? I have heard it. In fact, I've heard it more often than I want to describe. And I remember back in, whatever it was, 2006, when the tsunami hit Thailand. People I thought were solid, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians saying, My God could not be the cause of this. If my God, if your God is not the cause of it, then you are owning a God who is no longer sovereign, mighty, and powerful. You choose to follow a God who is weak, impotent, and unable to control the affairs of the world. Right? The truth is, and Joseph understood it, Joseph said, God is telling you what he is going to do because God controls these kind of things. Okay? Maybe you could say there's no such thing as a natural disaster. There are only such things as supernaturally sent disasters. Right? Now, we can go into all kinds of debate about God's direct cause and his indirect cause, and does God actually allow it, or does it actually come at his hand? And we could spend the next two hours debating that one, and I don't want to go there. Uh, but suffice it, whether he's the direct cause, the indirect cause, whether he simply allows Satan to do his work, in the end, God's still responsible, okay? God is still either a sovereign, almighty, powerful God who can stop it, can allow it, uh, and who's control of what comes in the future. Or he's not God, right? Uh, to deny the sovereignty of God is to worship a different God than the God of the Bible, right? Joseph would say that. Joseph says it here. Either, you know, you take God as he is, he's sovereign. And you may say, Well, I don't like that kind of God. Well, (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, you take him as he is, or you rewrite and reinvent a God in your own image and you worship an idol and a false God. Period. Right? That's the options that Scripture gives us. Uh, So he says, God has God has told you what he's going to do because he's sovereign, he's powerful. And uh, not only that, but God is revealing to you what he's going to do. Now, here's here's the balancing side of it. It's not only that God is sovereign, but God reveals to people what he is sovereignly going to do. God reveals to Pharaoh the disaster he's about to send. God, in his grace, doesn't just dump this stuff on us blindly. He is a God who, for those who will listen... For those who know how to tune into his voice, he is speaking truth. He is revealing his purpose and his plan. And for those who are sensitive, who can listen, who will pay attention to it, he's making it clear. And so he does that through through Pharaoh and through Joseph. Well then, so uh, Joseph interprets the dream. He tells what God's going to do. There's going to be prosperity for seven years. There's going to be famine for seven years. And then Joseph, on his own at his own initiative, at all of 30 years old, Hebrew slave, fresh out of prison, never been to college, never been to high school, um, he's a slave. But he says, "So, Pharaoh, let me tell you what you need to do. Okay, let me explain some things to you, Pharaoh, because you may not get this. Okay, so listen carefully. I'll speak slow. Okay. Therefore, Pharaoh should find intelligent and, uh, uh, an intelligent and wise man and put in charge." put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one fifth of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it so there will be food in the cities. That way there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise This famine will destroy the land. (coughs) So not only has God given Joseph great, brilliant insight into what he's going to do through Pharaoh's dream, but he also (coughs) has given uh, Joseph a brilliant and ingenious plan to take care of it. Now in our day and age, you know, we would look at this and we'll go, well, this would be obvious, you know. You know, a famine's coming. Of course you do this. But actually in, in, in this time period, you know, many... Hundreds of years ago, in the way their worldview worked, um, even somebody like Pharaoh did, would not have had the capacity to look forward into the future 14 years and think about preparing for the future like that. Okay, it's just not how they thought. This was radical and revolutionary. Okay, and it probably quite blew Pharaoh away. And he's going, "Wow, that is brilliant! Save up seven years' worth so when the seven years of drought come, you got." You've got a reserve, right? Now, we're all about reserves, probably too much about reserves, right? But for him and for this time period, this would have been revolutionary, right? Uh, and it was, it was very wise. Um, and, you know, basically what Joseph said is don't just stand there do something, you know? God's told you what he's going to do, uh, and now you need to think about what you're going to do about it. See, the problem with, when we are talking about the sovereignty of God and you know evil in the world, and the, the world wants to accuse God of being this horrible, evil God who sends disaster, the problem is we don't balance out God's sovereignty with human responsibility. God's sovereignty does not negate what we're supposed to do about it. Right? Uh, and there's this kind of fatalistic thing that if God's sovereign then we might as well just throw up our hands and just give up and like, because God's going to do what He's going to do and there's nothing we can do about it. But see, Scripture never teaches that. In fact, this, in this passage, illustrates it well. God says, this is what I'm doing. Now, what are you going to do about it? And, and Joseph said, look, God's revealed what He's going to do, but there is something we can do about it. We can respond to what we know about God's, God's revelation of the future And there's something we can do to prepare in advance for what God is about to do, right? So so, God's sovereignty is not a a fatalism, right? It doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and say, well, I guess we're just all going to die. The famine's coming, you know. Better eat well the first seven years because you're going to starve after that. No. God says, what are you going to do? This is what I'm going to do. I'm warning you. I'm revealing in my grace. I'm giving you knowledge of it. And I expect you to do something about it. To take responsibility and initiative to respond to my revelation. Um, You know, quick application point of this Um, Do we know what God is doing? Well, I don't know that I know, you know, next year if it's going to be a drought or a flood. You know, I can't honestly say that two months ago I saw, you know, God spoke to me and said, There's going to be a flood in Thailand, you know, build your house up. In fact, all my staff was telling me, you know, the water's going to come. It's going to flood our office. And I said, nah, it's not going to flood our office. We won't get that, deep." Well, I was wrong. <laughs> they were right. And I did something about it kind of late, actually. Uh, but do we know what God's doing in the world? Well, I don't know if we know about floods, but I do know this. God is going to judge the world, Right? God has made it clear, He has revealed that He is going to judge sin and that He is going to send those who reject Him to eternal punishment. He's warned us. What are we going to do about it? He is warning mankind there is judgment to come. What is mankind going to do about it? Are we going to keep walking down the path of evil? Are we going to repent and turn back to God and receive His grace and His mercy, His way of escape? God gave Pharaoh through Joseph a way of escape, right? He's giving the world a way of escape. Yeah, God is sovereign. Yeah, God sends some horrible stuff to the world that I don't understand sometimes. But the truth is God is also by His grace revealing a way of escape, right? And in fact, sometimes he sends these difficult things, he sends these judgments uh, to reveal people's need for them. You see, in, in Egypt, the Nile had become a god. Every year, in the interior of Africa, huge amounts of snow and rain would come and would swell the Nile River. And every year, without fail, the Nile River would flood and provide vast expanse of irrigated land. and And... A famine was extremely rare in Egypt. And on top of that, the pharaohs had built these elaborate irrigation and and, uh, dams and reservoirs, right? Uh, If you were to ask them, what's the source of life? They would have said, the River Nile. But God says, no, you don't get it, okay? And until I take away from you the River Nile and show you the true source of life, you're missing the point. You see, sometimes God has to send those judgments, send those hard times to help us reshape our worldview to know what the real source of life is. It's not the Nile River. There's a source to the Nile, and that source is God. Um, same thing's true in us. And God brings these hard times into the world because He wants people to turn to Him as the source of life. And we have the opportunity to bear both the hard news, but to give the, re- the invitation, what are you going to do about it? God's sending grace, and there's a way of escaping. Um, one other thing about, about uh, kind of Joseph's story here. Um, at this, let me read on, verse 37. It says, Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, Can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Uh, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you clearly, no one else is, an, is, get this, no one else is as intelligent or discerning or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all of my people will take orders from you only. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have rank higher than yours. Pharaoh proves here to be a very wise man, and in many ways, much wiser than many, many Christians. Right? Uh, Pharaoh looks at Joseph. And get this, okay, Pharaoh has at his disposal this college of doctors, extremely well-educated, okay, men who have spent their lives in study in schools, who have read all these, you know, libraries full of books, uh, men who were very well-proven as smart, right? But as, as Pharaoh looks across the landscape of people and he considers Joseph's advice, you better find some wise person to put in charge who can... Run the country and navigate through this difficult time, and Joseph uh, and, and Pharaoh thinks this through. Who does he identify as the smartest possible man in the whole country? Joseph, right? He says, "Who could be as smart as you? You've proven yourself as the smartest person in, in all of Egypt." Okay, now here's a young, thirty-year-old Hebrew, okay, which is kind of the, you know, uh, the hill tribe. I mean the. You're the minority group that's very much looked down on in Egypt okay and a slave who's never been to high school okay uh, never read a book or maybe a, a book here and there right you're the, he says you're the smartest guy in all of Egypt now why did he say that what was the basis or criteria for calling Joseph so smart was it because he'd gone to school and graduated was it because he had written you know a great article you know because he What was it? Well, two things. He said, I think you're the smartest man in the whole world, first of all, because you are filled with the Spirit of God. You've been filled with the Spirit of God. Secondly, uh, it's clear that uh, that you know God, that you have some kind of connection with this God of the universe who's going to do all this stuff. And thirdly, he talks to you. He's revealed to you his purpose, right? He says, who could be smarter than that, right? Who could be smarter than that? And so he appoints Joseph as ruler over everything. Um, and, and in this, I really think Pharaoh proves himself much smarter than many of us. Right? What do we call a smart person? Right? What do we, if, if, if uh, you know, I, I told you I'm resigning, I'm leaving, which it's funny. In the last two months, I've had a number of people come up and say, Oh, I heard you're leaving. <laughs> I don't know where that rumor came from. Not that I know of. Maybe God has plans. I, I'm not planning to leave. But suppose, suppose, I left and you had to search for somebody. And you want, you know, somebody as wise and intelligent as me to lead the church. <sighs> okay, it won't be hard to do. Um, what criteria would you look for? Well, honestly, and I and, don't and, uh, honestly, wouldn't you start looking for things like, well, where did he go to school? Does he have what kind of degrees? Does he have? How does he does he know Greek? Right? Right. Uh, you see, we've decided that smart people are people who have had book learning. Right. We've decided the people who will lead us are people who have book learning. We've decided not only that, but that when we disciple somebody, when we train leaders, when we prepare leaders for the church, we're going to do it by what? By book learning. We're going to make them smart by book learning, right? And I'm a product of this. Okay, you're, you're, you should know that you, you got what you asked for. I am smart by book learning. I got all the degrees. I went to, you know, seven and a half years of Bible college and seminary. I took classes in Bible study methods, hermeneutics, homiletics, theology, Greek, Hebrew, right? I've got good book learning. But Pharaoh says, you know, I got the book learning guys, and they're clueless. They have no idea. They can't help me. Right? What's smart is the guy who's filled with the Spirit of God and who hears from Him, who knows how to listen to God's voice. You know, after seven and a half years of Bible college, seminary, very good schools, very expensive education, you know how many classes I had teaching me to hear God's voice? Zero. Zero. Do you know how many classes I had teaching me what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Zero. It got a sentence in a theology class. you know. Oh, yeah, and when Jesus died on the cross, it, you got filled with the Spirit, and it got moved on from there. And that was it. Um, Al Lawton at the baptism last week, Al Lawton was telling me uh, when he did his very first baptism, he said, I, he had the person there, they were getting ready to dunk him in the water. He says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Dunks him in. And then he realized, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And he told me, he said, being in our church, it really didn't matter because the Holy Spirit didn't exist anyway. (laughs) Right? A lot of truth in that. A lot of truth in that. Um, You know, I I really think we've made a huge mistake. And I don't want to... This too much my book learning. I'm thankful for it. And I'm not saying we should not train people to study the Bible, read read, do all that kind of stuff. But is that what really equips people for life and ministry, for fruitfulness with God? No. And the reality is there's a lot of guys who have lots of book learning who are very smart academically, who are spiritually worthless because they lack those two skills. They don't know what it means to be filled and have their life controlled and dominated by the Holy Spirit. And they have no clue what it means to hear God speak to them. Okay? And I see it happening over and over. Where that's how we train leaders. We train people to be smart in the mechanics of studying the Bible. We've given them absolutely no clue what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live in God's presence and to hear His voice. Okay? And our church planting project down in Nisan, uh, we're, we're training these church planters, which means these brand new converts who are sending out to start home churches who don't have a clue, about anything, right? And, and we started tra- training them with this truth. We started teaching them that you know God, you can have a deep personal relationship with God. He wants to be with you, and He's given you his Holy Spirit to fill you with himself. And he speaks to you. and if you'll listen, you read the Bible, God will speak to you through His spirit through the word. And a brand new Christian lady, she'd been a believer for about seven or eight months and uh, she went off so she's brand new no Christian background comes out of a very Buddhist background has a high school maybe a high school education lives in this poor rural village and uh, a couple months later I went back and she said she she said "I, I felt God telling me I needed to go fast and pray for seven days okay well already she just blew me out of the water fasting and praying for seven days she said I started reading through the book of Isaiah and I read the book of Isaiah, and you know what God spoke to me? And My ears are peaked because I'm thinking, man, she's hearing God speak. She said, I'm reading and I felt like God telling me that I was using prayer as a way of manipulating Him instead of Him speaking His will and purpose into my life. Here's this very uneducated, rural, Thai farming lady who's been a believer for all of seven months. I'm going, man... Yeah, God spoke that to you because, you know, you you don't get that anywhere else, right? So that's what we need to be teaching people to do, to hear God's voice and to operate through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their life. Then, uh, you know, when you get the chance, you can teach them how to parse verbs and do other stuff. Um, so Pharaoh got that. Um, well, the rest of the chapter describes... Um, this great rise to, to glory for Joseph. And uh, he's appointed as essentially prime minister of the country. He he, he really becomes the ruler of Egypt. Right? Uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's got a great gig. You know, Pharaoh's kind of the face of power. Pharaoh's main job is to have his face stamped on money. Right. <clears throat> Aside from that, Joseph has complete and total authority and power over the country. And Pharaoh makes sure that not only does he have the job, but along with it goes all the glory with it. He gives him his his ring, which was the authority of Pharaoh. right? It was the signet ring. It was, what, it was Pharaoh's signature. So he gave Joseph complete and total authority over the whole empire of Egypt, the greatest empire in that day in the world. He gives him uh, new clothes and jewelry. In other words, he gives him the apparel of glory, right? So Joseph has authority, he has glory, so that when he goes out in public, nobody's going, well, that's kind of a young Hebrew slave. No, they're going, wow. Check out the clothes on that dude, right? He's got the torque, the the gold uh, jewelry of a leader and a king. Okay? And not only that, but he sends them out. He says, and everywhere you go, you're going to get my second best chariot. And people are going to go before you yelling out, bow down. Right? In other words, you are going to receive honor. Right? I love that. So here's a guy who one day is in prison. Next day, he's ruling the largest empire in the world with authority, glory, and honor. And Joseph uh, handles his responsibility with great humility. He personally uh, inspects the entire country. He sets up the programs. He institutes these uh, food-gathering places and local cities. He exercises great wisdom, and his plan works. He gathers so much grain that even as an minister who's quite good at spreadsheets, uh, he can't keep track of it all. He, He gives up. And uh, when when the famine comes, he is prepared. And the story ends this way. Um, It said, uh, the last of seven years of bumper crops ended. The seventh year, the famine began just as Joseph had predicted. The famine also struck all the surrounding countries. But throughout Egypt, there was plenty of food. But eventually, the famine spread throughout the land of Egypt as well. And when the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, he told them, go to Joseph. Go to Joseph and do what he says. And Joseph opened uh, the grain storehouses and distributed the grain. And people came from all around Egypt to buy grain uh, because the the famine was so severe. Uh, Joseph rises to great glory. In the midst of it, he has two kids, um, Manasseh and Ephraim. He's given a wife. uh, Asenath, the daughter of of a priest. (coughs) Um, So how do we summarize all this? Let me put all this together in kind of two levels. First level, real briefly, is the level of Joseph. Uh, To put it in the the context of Genesis, uh, God made this promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, kings will come from you, and you will be a blessing to the world. Okay, this is now Abraham's great-grandson, four generations, and what's happened. You know, Abraham's great-grandson is a king ruling the greatest empire of the world. Not bad. Not bad, right? Because God does this. Um, uh, God has obviously blessed him in incredible ways. Uh, but beyond that, uh, Joseph becomes the first deliverer of, of Abraham's family, right? Uh, Abraham intervened in, in on a very small scale locally as he prayed for Lot and other things, saw deliverance on a small scale. But, but now you see a descendant of Abraham, just four generations, his great-grandson, being the deliverer of the world. Uh, because of what God did through Joseph, the whole empire and, and many surrounding nations, Right? live, uh, are delivered because of, because of Joseph. Um, he is clearly a blessing to the world. And it's a great picture. Um, and, and, of course, we know the next chapter, uh, he's not only a deliverer of the world at large, but he's a deliverer of his own family. He becomes a deliverer of the 12 tribes of Israel who would have started, starved to death uh, had it not been for Joseph. But beyond that, in, that, that's its context in Genesis, okay? But beyond that, in the context of the Bible, Joseph becomes a foreshadow, right? What's a foreshadow? Well, if you're walking with the sun to your back and the, and the sun is setting, you have a foreshadow. In other words, your, your shadow goes out ahead of you. So if you're trying to sneak up some, on somebody and you're walking, it's kind of hard to sneak up because your shadow goes ahead of you. It's a foreshadow. And if uh, somebody's hiding around the corner wanting to ambush you, they'll see your shadow coming and they'll know that in a minute the real thing's coming, right? It's your foreshadow. Well, Joseph becomes a foreshadow, of course, of of God who is a deliverer. God is sovereign over all things, but also God wants to be the rescuer of the world. And Joseph becomes really the first significant foreshadow of Jesus who would be the, the deliverer of the world. And there's a couple things that are significant about how Joseph is a foreshadow of Jesus. Um, and it really breaks down into two halves of his life. Um, you know, Joseph, in order to be a deliverer, had to be drug off as a captive and a slave, had to become a slave in a foreign country away from his father and his family. And you get a picture of the pain in this when you look at how Joseph named his sons. He says he named his son. Um, Manasseh, for, for he said, God has made me forget all the troubles and everyone in my father's family. Um, it was painful for Joseph to be ripped away from his father and his family. I mean, not his brother so much, but his father. <laughs> right. uh, it was painful, and it still was a pain for him uh, that was made up somewhat by the birth of his son. It was a consolation for that. Uh, his next son comes along, Ephraim. He said, "For God has made me fruitful, but nobody adds. He's made me fruitful in this land of my grief." Right? What a great picture of what a foreshadow of what Jesus has done for us. You know, Jesus came to be our deliverer, but to do that, it required him leaving his father and coming far away to a world where he would be what? A servant, a slave. Ultimately, a prisoner. I mean, and beyond a prisoner, a criminal who was executed to death. Right? Um, you know, the, the Jesus didn't come saving the world on a uh, a white horse with armor as a battle chief. He came to save the world as a slave, and he went low. Right? And, and Joseph's a great picture of that, a guy who re- really went to the bottom, as low as it can get. And that's what it required for Jesus to save us. He had to go as low as it can get. Uh, Paul says in Philippians, he humbled himself. Amazing thought. You know, the God of the universe, this God who is sovereign, this God who controls uh, everything, humbled himself. Right? And like Joseph, he went to the very depths of the pit to save us. But it didn't stop there. Uh, Just as Joseph was lifted up and exalted, in the same way Jesus is lifted up and exalted, he's been given the the authority, the glory, and the honor by his father. And while he was a slave, he's no longer a slave, right? He now rules with absolute authority, sovereignly over all the empire of God, second only to God the Father, Right? So it's a great picture of Jesus as our Savior, uh, but beyond that, it's also really a foreshadow of, of our own glory. Um, the The reality is that sometimes life can be kind of in the pits, right? You may identify with that. <laughs> you know, um, sometimes life on earth is hard, and uh, Joseph is a model for us that this is normal. That we're supposed to be people who suffer for a time. That part of God's mission and purpose in our life is the life of a slave. is the life in bondservant to a world that's corrupt and evil. Uh, but it doesn't end there. And I just love the way this story ends. I mean, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it's like a dream come true. You know, I mean, I've always just dreamed this. Kind of an insane, crazy dream that will never happen. But, you know, the President of the United States just died and they want you to be the President. Okay, I'll do it. Air Force One's flying on its way to pick you up right now, right? It's like, man, yeah. Uh, King of Thailand died and we want you to take his place. (laughs) Okay, sure. Well, that's what God has done for us, right? Uh, We are joint heirs with Jesus. All the glory that he shares is ours. We're not just saved out of the pit and set up as kind of an average, everyday, ordinary person. We are saved to glory. Glory. Someday we will rule through all eternity as joint heirs with Jesus. We will be uh, given the authority, the glory, and the honor of, of God Almighty and we will share with him. So, you know, when you're in the pit, it seems like you've been forgotten. Uh, You have not, right? And God is, is not done yet, right? There is future glory. Let's pray. Father, we do just stand amazed at your promises And really how the story of Joseph does picture really all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation uh, in the unfolding plan of God who uh, in your love and goodness by the one hand you must condemn us to death and judgment and wrath but indeed it is you who has put us in the dungeon because of sin and death. Uh, Because of our own rebellion against you, we have separated ourselves and have found ourselves in the pit and deserving to be there. Uh, But you have sent your own Son, innocent, good, holy, in every way righteous, who has come to join us in that pit, who has walked with us to the very lowest place that humanity can stoop to, And there in that depth of muck and mire and junk has become sin for us. And that as you rose Jesus up from the dead and have appointed him to glory, and as Revelation portrays glory with incredible power and victory and overcoming the world, so too we are raised up with Christ to new life, and to a future of hope and glory and power. Um, Lord, help us more and more every day to to see what You are doing um, and to believe it and to walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.